What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 120 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't answer the question first. I'm not answer the question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. You can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we are going to talk about what we've been eating and then squeeze into our postal wetsuits before plunging into the icy depths of the mailbag, where we will answer listener questions, comments, and concerns. I just can't trip you up anymore, Paul. I did read that one beforehand, I admit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, before we get into anything, Paul, I just wanted to issue a correction from last week's episode, which was our discussion with Vegan Warrior Princess's attack about the hashtag... Time's Up AR and Me Too and all these you know public allegations and what we can do about it. And during that discussion, we referenced some events and people and organizations without giving proper credit. And that is totally our bad. So we wanted to just issue a correction right now. And the first is the AR2White hashtag and campaign and actions and t-shirts, all of that that we mentioned is credited to Collectively Free. And we'll put a link to them in our show notes if you want to learn more about them. And we also discussed the importance of holding conference organizers accountable, not just the speakers. Uh, and it was brought to our attention that Collectively Free was also working to do that as well. So credit where credit is due on that. And I uh, just want to say that we were supportive of those actions. I know some people wrote in asking you know, how we felt about them. And, and overwhelmingly, I think we're positive on those. So. So that's the first correction. And the second one is Callie and Nicole mentioned the Vegans of Color conference and that the name might have changed. And so we looked it up to make sure we got that right. And the name of the conference is now the People of Color Animal Rights Advocacy and Food Justice Conference. And that's put on by the Vegan Advocacy Initiative. And we'll nice. put a link to that in the show notes as well. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So, with that said, let's get into the episode. First thing we got to do, every mailbag, Paul, we got some winners to announce. Winners! So, this is from our iTunes review, and if you're not if you're not aware, if you would be so kind as to write in a review on iTunes for us, it has to be a written review because we can't see if it's just a, a like a star review. Obviously, you're going to give us five stars, but that's besides the point. No, you should give us whatever, however many stars and whatever review you think that we actually deserve. But if you have left a comment review every mailbag episode, that's every 10 episodes, we pick three random winners and they get sent a sticker and or button. And Andy, who's our first winner? Our first winner is JRG1232. Hooray! Rolls right off the tongue. (laughs) The second winner is Ramona Swan, who who left the comment, does it get any better than this? Who knows? I don't know. Which is my... You know, my, my catchphrase that everyone is aware of I feel from like, the show. <laughs> I feel like you haven't said it in a very long time. This is an older review. So, because the, yes, any, anyone who enters, you're entered for life. Whether you left it two years ago or two days ago, you're in the running forever until you win. And, Paul, I feel like you got to bring that one back. I do. But does this maybe imply that I do know now? <laughs> 
I don't know, Paul. <laughs> All right. And our final winner is Emily MM12, who said, I know they aren't experts, but in a way, that's what I enjoy. <laughs> Very, I'll take that as a compliment. Yes, absolutely. I know we're we're often ones to uh, add the caveat of we have no idea what we're talking about. So we're glad that that's what you enjoy about our show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. So once again, JRG one two three two Ramona Swan and Emily MM one two. If that's you, send us an email to thebeardedvegans at gmail dot com with your address, and we will get those out to you asap. So before we get into the mailbag, everyone's favorite segment, Andy, what have you been eating? Literally nothing. Literally (laughs) nothing. (laughs) No, that is totally an inappropriate use of the word literally. I've actually been house-sitting for my parents, and because of that, since I normally am in my van, I am taking use of a kitchen. And that means I'm, like, cooking all this stuff. I haven't eaten out at a restaurant in, like, two weeks, which is, like, a really weird thing for me. So I post a lot of pictures of the stuff I'm creating, but nothing from any restaurants of note. So I will pass this section off to you, Paul. What went in that beautiful mouth of yours? I haven't been eating at too many new restaurants, just going to the same old usual ones. But I did get some special Valentine's Day cookies from Crust Bakery in Philadelphia. They had cute little sassy messages on them, like, go away and... (laughs) Nice butt. And then there was one that was literally just a picture of a cartoon butt on it. So I liked that one too. But yeah, one of them was like, I love me. They were good. They were all, they all had great messages. It was hard to pick the box with the messages that I liked the most. And added bonus, the cookies themselves were delicious as well. Some nice sugar cookies. So shout out to Crust. Yeah, I'm a fan of their work and um, I'm sad that I don't have them in my life more often. Too bad, Andy. Yes, yes, indeed. All right. <laughs> With that said, we just powered right through all those announcements and winners and, and food, Paul. So it's time for us to dive into the mailbag. Because the mail never stops. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. There's never a let up. It's relentless. Every day it piles up more and more and more. And you've got to get it up. And the more you get out, the more it keeps coming in. And then the barcode reader breaks. And it's public. It's clearing out. All right, all right, all right. When you control the mail... You control information. So these are questions, comments, and concerns that have been called from our email, from our Instagram, and from our Facebook. If you want in on a future episode, hit up that email, thebeardvegans at gmail.com. You can be anonymous if you want. You can have us include your name if you want. It doesn't matter. No question too big or too small. We love hearing from everyone. We try and cultivate for these episodes a a nice variety of questions. You know, often we've been going for over two years now, so we get repeat questions or try and to keep it fresh. Um, So apologies if we don't get to your question. We get a lot of emails at this point, and we try to respond to everyone privately at some point, even if we're super late on doing that. But thank you again. We, We love hearing from everybody, and these mailbag episodes are one of my absolute favorites because we get to really interact with the Beardos. I will say, though, there were a lot of two medium questions sent in this week, which... God damn it, Paul. <laughs> Gonna make that joke every time. Wait in the car. <laughs> so, shall we kick it off, Andy? Let's do it. What's, it. what's that first letter sitting on top of the stack? <laughs> so, our first question is from Instagram, from Fiona.h.cow. Do you think that's how that's pronounced? I sure do. I don't know how right. any, <laughs> any other way that you would pronounce it. <laughs> Who asked, any plans to visit any veg fests over the pond in the future? Preferably Bonnie, Scotland. 
Well, as the the resident beardo that travels the most, especially for VegFest, I have to say currently no plans to go to Scotland or anywhere in the UK. I really want to. If someone in Scotland wants to invite us to come do a live podcast there and cover our expenses, <laughs> we would love to visit Scotland. So for all our Scotland uh, listeners, make it happen. And shout out to the baked potato in Edinburgh, Scotland, where I got vegan haggis one time. <laughs> nice, Paul. Nice. All right. So our next email comes in from Jessica G, who wrote... What is the most ridiculous argument you've ever had thrown in your face against veganism? Paul, mm-hmm. what's the most ridiculous argument you've ever had thrown in your face? So I chose one that's ridiculous, not because of, you know, like not because it's silly, but because I think it's just a, a, a poor argument to make for and a problematic argument to make, which I'll say why. And that's the argument of someone saying something along the lines of, Oh, so you don't care about the workers that are picking your vegetables. You just you care just about the animals. You don't care about humans. And I and I think it's ridiculous because these are, you know, very serious issues, the issues of the farmers, of these workers, how oftentimes they are are being treated or very unfairly, not being paid enough just poor conditions overall and then if you want to get into like chocolate and and coffee and and those sorts of ethics about that labor as well we can talk about that too but like those are super serious issues but i don't like this argument because one it implies that we can't care about more than one issue at the same time we can't both care about not hurting the animals and treating these workers better and then also like i don't like this argument and i think it's ridiculous because for the most part when someone makes this argument it's kind of just a deflection to try to be like hey we need to stop talking about something that i'm doing and we need to start talking about something that you're doing instead and i'm going to point out something that you're doing that's wrong and 99 percent of people that are going to point this out aren't talking about don't don't in any other instance in their day don't really think about the issues of the workers that are being exploited they, and they wouldn't think about how they're also purchasing either either purchasing vegetables or they're purchasing products that have used the harvest of those vegetables and they're not thinking about you know the workers that are working in slaughterhouses in these big agricultural businesses that are where the workers are also being exploited so i just Again, I used the word ridiculous. I think I took it differently than Andy did, but <laughs> I just I just really that argument makes me heated because it's like that is something that is a very serious issue that you're bringing up, but I don't think you're bringing it up because you actually want to talk about it. You don't actually want to work through this serious issue. You just want to say it because you're trying to catch me slipping or something like that. So that's why that was the long-winded answer, but that to me, is my least favorite argument that someone makes against veganism. Yeah, yeah. It's such a disingenuous argument. It reminds me of this this meme that's gone around. It's from a Chelsea Pretty bit, which is who's a comedian. And uh, the caption on it, it's just pictures of Chelsea doing stand-up. And the caption is, 
A lot of my friends are vegan now, which I don't care. Eat whatever you want. I just think that my least favorite part of the vegan diet is the verbal part where they explain it to you. It's just endless. They're like, I'm a vegetarian. I don't even eat milk or honey because it takes animal labor to make milk and honey, and I think that's wrong. And it just strikes me as childish logic. It's like, I like bees and I like cows more than the immigrants that pick the vegetables I eat. And it always like irked me so much. And then someone someone did a you know like a meme correction thing uh, where someone sort of writes over the original wording and they changed it to some of my friends are vegan now. I hate it because they're trying to cause the least amount of harm to animals, humans, and the planet possible. Their very presence is a constant reminder that my lifestyle is unethical, environmentally destructive, unresourceful, and unjustifiable. So I make uneducated jokes that focus on the negative impacts they still have while completely disregarding mine. It's so much easier attempting to discredit and nullify their efforts than it is to make an effort of my own. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> and And, you know, it's like I will say... This is not to say that there aren't people who eat meat and or I should say who are not vegan and do work for helping out like this, these these workers. So like there are people that are doing that. But from my experience in general, most most people that bring up that argument do not genuinely care about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a it's a deflection, Paul. It's a deflection. So, Andy, what what is your most ridiculous argument? Well, I was doing pay-per-view outreach on a college campus. We're, you know, showing people videos of what happens to animals in the agricultural system. And we talked to them afterwards. And I, and this one guy said that he has to eat meat because he needs to keep his stomach acclimated to digesting meat in preparation for the apocalypse. Because huh. if the apocalypse happens, there won't be grocery stores. It will be a lot harder to remain vegan during the apocalypse. And he doesn't want to deal with the digestive issues that would come along with consuming meat and dairy. Should a situation arise in which he has been vegan for a while and now has to go back to it because of the apocalypse. But couldn't you also say if there's not grocery stores, unless said individual knows how to, you know, kill and prepare meat in a way that won't you know kill you isn't that kind of the same thing like if he's going from eating meat that's been prepared for him to then having to prepare it for himself i think the majority of people would not know how to do that perhaps perhaps i don't know i don't know what this individual's skill set is paul <laughs> that's true <laughs> this is true but it's it's i don't know to me i was just thinking that by consuming animals, you're helping to usher in the apocalypse earlier because of how horrible it is for the environment. <laughs> this is also true. Uh, so I don't know. I, I've, I feel like I've heard a ton of really weird arguments in, when I was doing that sort of outreach, but that one, that one is the one that immediately jumped to mind. There's a part two to this question, Paul, and uh, Jessica G asks, why the heck have I not won a button yet? Uh, as, <laughs> as our resident math expert, perhaps you could speak to the statistical probability of someone winning a button. Well... As our uh, humble podcast grows more popular, I would expect that the amount of reviews that we're receiving are is increasing, and this is not nullified by the fact that every 10 episodes, three people are chosen and thus are erased from the, the pool of people that could possibly be selected because we don't do repeats. So if anything, I think as time goes on, the probability of you getting chosen is unfortunately 
diminishing. <laughs> That's so depressing. <laughs> it is. But if you got in there early, you know, you're just increasing your, your odds. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's one surefire way to make sure you get a button and or sticker, and that's to come see Paul or I at an event that we're doing. Who's Paul or I? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Paul. I love you. Uh, for, for those that don't make it to the end of our episodes, one, shame on you. But two, at the very end, we always list where we're going to be in the country for the next like month or so. So track one of us down. Say, what's up, Beardo? And we will give you a button and sticker that way. It's guaranteed. Yeah. Unless we run out. (laughs) (laughs) So shall I go on to the next question? Let's do it. This is also from Instagram from Veggie Bean Jen. Veggie Bean Jen. VBJ. Did you see the vegan messages in Star Wars The Last Jedi? You know, sort of. I think that a lot of people made a big deal about this. Spoiler alert. Afterwards. Yeah, I mean... I guess we're going to talk about things that are kind of spoilery for The Last Jedi. If for some reason you haven't seen it yet. If you haven't seen it yet, but still really care to see it yet, I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe you have children. I know that that makes it really hard to go to the theater. But, yeah, there are definitely some messages I think could be construed as being vaguely vegan or animal rights or animal liberation oriented. I think, as usual, a lot of the vegan outlets wanted to to grab a hold of it, find something that's popular, and, and squeeze it into the narrative. But there are definitely some some notable moments. I think uh, Chewbacca choosing not to eat a porg was a big one. And then uh, there's the f- Fathiers, I think they're pronounced, which are like the, the horse-like creatures that get liberated during that unfortunate escapade to the casino planet that really i feel like didn't add much to the plot whatsoever (laughs) that's just me but the thing i wanted to ask you about paul there's Mm -hmm. a moment in which luke skywalker drinks milk directly from some alien creature's name i'm not aware of do you feel like that moment was so disgusting that it points out how like ridiculous it is for humans to drink the milk of another creature or you think it's maybe too outlandish for people to make that connection so, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but I think that both the Chewbacca not eating the porg and Luke drinking the milk, I think that both those shots were just done as a gag. Like, they were just done because they knew that scene would get laughs, which in my theater, it did get laughs. I don't think that, I don't think that if I had to guess, the people that were writing these scenes had an intention to be like, oh, I'm really going to get this message across. I could be wrong, and please let us know if if there maybe was someone on the writing team or somewhere in the, the, the production that was trying to push for these messages. But I think that both those scenes were purely done because they knew it would get laughs. And to answer your question about Luke drinking the milk, I don't think it was... I don't even think it's... I would even say it was pro or anti-milk. I just think they wanted to show a scene where Luke was milking this ridiculous looking creature, because I think that if they had shown a scene of him just going over and there was a, just a regular cow and he just went and milked the cow. Like, I don't think that would have added one way or the other. I think it would have, people would just look at that and be like, Oh, he's doing the thing that we also do here on, on our earth. But because it's like this ridiculously large creature that's like goofy looking, it's funny. So I don't think that it's pro or anti-milk. I, 
I think personally that people are reading too much into it. And with the, the horse-like creatures, the fathers, excuse the pronunciation, I think that that was more supposed to be an analogy uh, or an allusion to like the rebels fighting for their freedom. I think that that's the reason why they included that because you know, later on it shows those children in like the stables who were forced to take care of these creatures. It shows them like thinking about joining the rebellion or it shows them with the, like now the ideas in their head are about, about rebellion. So I think that that's what the, that scene was supposed to be. It was just supposed to be a, a, is it a metaphor? No, an analogy, a metaphor. What's the word I'm looking for? Paul, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think it was supposed to have an animal message, even though they were using animals to either get these jokes across or to make this, to hit this message home. I don't think there was any vegan message in it. So are you trying to tell me that you think that if someone's really looking for something, they can find it? Like if, if you have a certain set of like vegan goggles on you're going to sort of interpret everything through that and find messages that the, the average public isn't going to find i think so yeah but do you think that that's still a good thing even if it's not super apparent but it's still sort of infiltrating people's subconscious with these animal liberation messages i don't know that it's really doing anything though because with the porgs for instance you know there were one of my favorite parts of the movie they were just the most adorable little things in the world and in the same way that in the u.s you know we feel bad when animals are hurt that are super duper cute or whenever we see a cute animal we're like oh i would never eat that animal and when i say we i mean the general population of the u.s you know the royal we so (laughs) like i think that that's that's how we would see this in the same it's like the same thing that in this movie it's like of course Chewbacca is not going to eat this this porg it's it's they're so adorable and cute like if it was some if it was some hideous looking bird I think that and he it showed him eating it I think that the viewer would have no problem with that they were they would see no the general viewer would have no issue with that it's because it's super duper cute so if anything andy it reinforces <laughs> it reinforces that it's it, it, you you shouldn't eat the cute animals because they're too cute and that's it damn again i'm being a debbie downer about this i don't know how the general public would feel about this i would imagine they are not thinking about this as intently intensely as we are maybe it's having some subliminal hinting towards them um i don't think it's personally anything substantial enough to to you know <laughs> to warrant the the 10 minute discussion that we've had about it <laughs> fair enough i did find one youtube video that was someone that was very anti-animal rights talking about the messages and how hsus has infiltrated the entertainment industry and how horrible this all is so eh, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. But uh, yeah, I generally sort of fall in your camp where I'm like, yeah, it's there, but it's not that apparent. And it's interesting to point out that, like, yes, the, the fathers were freed, but they were ridden first. Like they were used to the hero's ends before they were freed. And I would I would maybe argue that this this YouTuber that you were just referencing is wearing goggles with the lenses flipped around where they're specifically looking for things to be like, oh, this is the this is the animal rights movement trying to jam their liberal agenda down our throats again. You know, so it's like the same thing, but in the 
in the opposite direction. They are also looking for things to be turds about. What makes you think that YouTuber had a Southern accent, Paul? <laughs> that wasn't a Southern accent. That was a, a gruff man accent. Maybe it was a Southern <laughs> accent. I don't know. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> gonna call you out on relying on a lazy stereotype but all I'm right uh, i hear your, your gruff man your gruff man accent <laughs> what am i trying to say about gruff over men? here <laughs> uh all right let's move on to the next question we have a lot we devoted far too much time to that question uh we got an anonymous email which asked hey beardos loved your discussion of hashtag times up ar with the princesses and it got me thinking what do you think is the best practices in terms of remaining Facebook friends with problematic people, specifically ones outed in the way that people like Paul Shapiro, Wayne Pacelli, or Alex Hershaft were? Is there value in staying friends to, quote, keep tabs, or does it make me guilty by association? I think this is a pretty good question. It is a good question. For me, I see I see Facebook and Instagram as as kind of, and maybe this is just me, I see them as different in the fact that on Instagram, I feel like you follow another person and that kind of shows that you're interested in that person, that shows your support of that person. With Facebook, though, unless it's like a, 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 a uh, what is it called, like a, a page for a famous person, for instance, like you can like pages of, I don't know, Lady Gaga or something like that. But when we're just talking about being friends with a person on Facebook, I don't as much see that as like oh now i'm that means i'm supporting them because in my experience people aren't like look how many friends i have on facebook i and i think there's actually a, there might be a, a cap on how many friends you Five, can have 5000 yeah so it's not like instagram where in instagram people are saying well, you know, look how many supporters this person has. Look how many followers this person has. This person has 100,000 followers. That's, to me, that's different than Facebook, which is just like you're connected with this other person so you can see what they're doing. But that, to me, no one ever says, I have 4,000 Facebook friends, so that must mean that I'm right. I could be wrong, but I think they're different. And for that reason, I think I'm, I, I think it's, okay to to remain friends with someone on facebook if you wanted to say keep tabs on them or you know inject in some discussions if you if that's what you're trying to do uh but i feel more wary about people on on instagram and i'm more inclined to say i would unfollow people on instagram if i find out about this kind of stuff interesting i i feel like this question wasn't so much about the significance of a friend count or a follower count i i feel the opposite though about that i feel like instagram is a lot more i want to say innocuous but like facebook is something where you can easily go and see if someone is friends and the term is it's not even the you know it's the term friends it's not the term follower and i think that for me, when I get a friend request from somebody, I the first thing I do is check who are the mutuals because that gives me – maybe this isn't the best gauge, but it gives me some idea of who this person is, what their politics are. You know, I see, oh, are these all just mutuals that are just like random band acquaintances or are these all people that are, you know, in sort of the more welfare corporate-based animal movement or are they grassroots – you know, like I, I get a gauge for that. And sometimes I'll just automatically give someone an ad just based off of the, if the people that they are mutuals with are people that I generally trust and, and appreciate what they have to say, their interpretation of current events and whatnot. 
So I feel like there's more weight to someone being a Facebook friend. Andy Tabar, judging a Facebook by its cover. <laughs> nice. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I get that. It should be noted that Facebook is not Paul's preferred medium. I feel like you post there very rarely. Very rarely. And it's mostly just people posting Africa by Toto memes on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This I think is, we this know is what the outro is going to be, Paul. <laughs> Finally. And I, I think you are right in a sense because occasionally I will see – uh, like if if I'm just in a Facebook discussion and I'll like there there'll be someone there that I don't know and I click on their profile and I see who their mutuals are and and you're right that sometimes I'll be like I'll be trying to gauge that person's viewpoints based on their mutuals which I think is probably unfair to that person to some extent and I'm sure that I am f- Facebook friends with people I'm fa- probably Facebook friends with. A plethora of people who I have very strong disagreements about, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to all these random people I'm still friends with from high school, in college, you know, it's like 90% of people I probably have very opposing views to in, in certain, in certain uh, fields of thought. But so I don't know, I, I, you're probably right, Andy, that Facebook is not my preferred social media, so I put less weight on it. But to me, personally, it, like, I don't see... I don't see someone being friends with one of these people that were listed and automatically write that person off. Maybe I should, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, I I guess for me where I stand on it is I don't think we should try and control who people are friends with. Like I'm not a huge, huge fan. And sometimes there's a place for this, but I'm not a huge fan of the post. They're like, why is everyone still friends with this person? Or this person said this one thing that's off and therefore everyone should unfriend them or else we're, you're garbage or all those things. Again, there are certainly places for that and they can be used to draw attention to problematic people. There's definitely people that just straight up add lots of people within certain social scenes and certain movements. And, you know, there's a lot of random people I've been friends with where it's like, wait, how did I become friends with this? Oh, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're you know, a vegan activist and they added me. It's like a year ago or something. And so so people might be, quote, unquote, friends with someone that they didn't realize did some horrible thing just because it's someone that adds hundreds of other vegan activists or something like that. And posts of that nature can draw attention to it. But I do think that, like, if we try and control who people are friends with, that that gets into some really murky territory. But I do think that if you remain friends with someone on Facebook, on some level at least, it is showing some amount of approval of who they are as a person or like what they've done. And I get that some people just remain friends with say these high profile figures that have recently had allegations against them because they want to be able to continue to interact on their threads and sort of call them out on things. Um, I, I unfriended some of those people and then they made their posts private and I can no longer see them. And I kind of regret that I no longer have that ability to kind of observe what's going on and respond to it. So I think that, I think that if you are going to remain friends with someone that something like this has happened to, it's important that you're sort of visibly holding them accountable because if you're just sort of floating there, observing things, people don't really know where you stand. And I think that 
you know, for people that are they're new to a movement, they'll come in, they'll be like, oh, I really like this person and they like this person. So that person must be cool, whether that's a fair assessment or not. So I think that if you do remain friends with someone, there is some amount of responsibility to publicly be in the discussion and holding them accountable. Yeah, I agree with that. I would also say that this question asker, I would say, doesn't need to feel guilty about this. I, I think that while all the points you made are fair, I don't think it's like the be all end all of whether someone's a good person or not is by who they're Facebook friends with. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't know. It really just depends on your reasoning and if you can back it up and all that. Yeah. All right. Facebook. (laughs) Love to hate it. (laughs) The next question is coming in from our email from Nicholas C who asked, Maybe you already covered this to an extent, but it would be great to hear you discuss wool versus polyester. I had a debate recently with a fellow health vegan friend, diet only, not ethics or clothing, about how he trusts, quote, ethically sourced wool over polyester. His valid points about polyester are that one, essentially it does not decompose, and two, it is more than likely made with poor labor practices or slave labor. I still would not buy wool, considering there are 1 billion sheep farmed specifically for this and most end up in the slaughterhouse at one point. However, the damage plastic clothing has had on a huge amount of animals, including humans, is also worrisome. I sent him this link to an ethically sourced non-animal shop, and that's bravegentleman.com. Curious to know if you would support lab-grown animal fabrics as well, if it ends up becoming an option. So, Andy, I'm glad I asked this because talk to me about clothing. <laughs> uh, this is such a complicated issue. I, You know, I sell clothing for a living, so this is near and dear to my heart. It's something I, I do a lot of research on, and I try and weigh out the the impacts of various fabrics. That's part of my brand is, you know, that we take into consideration all these these factors. The first thing that I want to bring up is it's interesting that the question asked is wool versus polyester, because obviously there are so many other types of fabric other than wool and polyester. So it's almost like a false question, because what about bamboo? What about, you know, silk? I don't know what the environmental impact of silk is. Uh, That's something that's typically considered non-vegan or leather or... Uh, hemp or you know whatever it might be so there's all these factors and in so many of them this is an apples to oranges comparison like every fabric that we make has some downside and I, I encountered this when I was looking into producing bamboo fabrics and and I learned okay oh bamboo it's basically a big grass so you can just sort of cut it and it grows again and it's way better for the soil and doesn't use nearly as much water and the the pesticides and all this stuff that's great and then I learned that like in the production of the the bamboo of turning it from bamboo you know the the bamboo into a fabric that's not great for the environment so okay but then cotton takes a lot of water but even organic takes water and trying to like weigh it out and it's like well where do you want to do your damage and what what aspect of the production do you find to be the most valuable so it's a really hard thing to weigh out um i found a really cool article at slate.com that was that was weighing out wool versus cotton which i think is probably a more common fabric than polyester at this point um, I certainly use a lot of organic cotton in mine, and it like weighed all these factors out, but again, sort of acknowledges that it's really hard to weigh these against each other. But in the end, it gave a slight edge to cotton 
Um, one of the reasons was sheep flatulate 20 to 30 liters of methane per day, which is only mm. about a tenth of what a cow does. But, you know, you look at a place like New Zealand and they're a major wool exporter. They have 45 million sheep. And so their livestock emissions account for half of their greenhouse gases over there. So, you know, it's it's really tricky. And, and I think that given that in my research, there's nothing that in terms of producing a new product environmentally has a distinct edge. Um, and I know people have different opinions on that. But every time I read, oh, this product is better because of this, then I was like, well, actually, it's not as good because of this. I think that it is important to weigh out the animal cruelty aspect of it. And, you know, you mentioned in your email, quote unquote, ethically sourced wool. I don't really believe there is an ethical source of wool, just like I don't believe there's an ethical source of eggs or milk, because we are taking something from an animal that's that we don't have a right to take. Obviously, there are, you know, sheep that we've selectively bred and they, they produce a lot more wool than they normally would have if they were just sort of a free roaming animal that humans never intervened with. And some of them apparently need that as part of their, you know, upkeep, essentially. But ultimately, I feel like there's it's not justifiable for me. And so I think that other things that are really important to look at are wearing, you know, hand-me-down clothes or upcycled clothes or clothes from a thrift shop because then you're not producing a new product at all. It's also important to look at how often you wash your fabrics that you that your clothing that you have, because that's a huge part of the environmental impact of the your clothing that you wear as well it's important not to engage in fast fashion where you just buy something to wear it for a week and then you never wear it again i think it's important that you buy something and wear it until it's really hard to wear anymore uh i am like people joke that i'm a cartoon character because i just wear the same t-shirts over and over (laughs) and over again and i wear shirts you know that i made for my company from six years ago that i'm still wearing today that i wear twice a week and i wear them two or three times before i wash them uh, m- much to some, some people's chagrin, <laughs> uh, you know, but like things like that are important to to consider outside of the production of the actual, actual fabric. And again, for me, the fact that you're taking something from an animal that doesn't consent to it, that weighs very heavily in terms of my assessment of these things. Very nicely put, Andy. I, I do have one thing to say. In the words of Lil Dicky, why can't we compare apples and oranges? <laughs> For some reason, I knew you were going to bring that up, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have nothing to add because this is this is something that I will say to Andy's credit, he has researched into an immense amount that I my knowledge pales in comparison to. So I really have have nothing else to add. I think Andy basically covered it all. All right, our next email is coming in from Janet I, who emails from Scotland. Greetings from across the pond. Today I was hosting a meeting at work. To avoid issues of people wanting cow's milk in a hot drink, I only offered a selection of fresh fruit juices and water, despite it being a frosty day outside. No one asked for a hot drink, and I know that I could have offered hot drinks with plant-based milk only, but I guess I was a bit more concerned that this could potentially lead to a situation where someone would have asked me if there was any, quote, normal milk, and then I would either have to agree to get them some cow's milk from our office fridge or to decline on the grounds of my veganism, not wanting to have any part in the facilitating of cow's milk consumption. My preference was to avoid this situation arising. 
I'm interested to know what your views are on offering hospitality, and in particular, hot drinks to non-vegans, especially when you are doing this in an environment where you are perhaps the only vegan and where cow's milk is clearly going to be available. Even before I became a vegan, I took my tea and coffee without milk, but I'm aware that this is not most people's preference. Best wishes from Janet. Interesting question, Paul. I feel like you're probably way more likely to be in a situation like this than I am since I am a hermit that lives in my van and you are a teacher that <laughs> presumably has like office faculties and whatnot. So I, I personally think that Janet tackled this situation in what I would think is the best way possible, which was to avoid a situation where someone would ask for this, this sort of thing. I, I totally get what they're saying in that, in a, in this normal situation, milk probably would have been offered. But I think that Janet's right in that if you had included, say, milk, uh, uh, say like a soy milk or something for coffee, people might have been like, oh, I kind of want the, the regular milk. Maybe they wouldn't have. Maybe most people wouldn't have. But I would imagine some people might have. So I think that this was a great tactic to kind of just avoid the situation completely avoid the possibility of people asking for it i wonder if there's a benefit though in in putting out the hot drinks and then putting out a selection of plant-based milks like yes it does run the risk of someone running to the office fridge and grabbing some cow's milk but also might expose someone to these other plant-based milks and and you know as we've discussed in the show many times a lot of people who aren't vegan drink almond milk and so Maybe someone who is really averse to plant-based alternatives and they know you're the weird vegan in the office, but then they see the three other people that they view as sort of normal, quote unquote, normal people. Those, those other people love almond milk. They put it in their hot drink and then that person thinks it's not so weird to drink it anymore. You're right. You're right. I, and obviously we don't know necessarily what the, the general population, how the general population feels about uh, non-dairy milks in Scotland, but yeah, I would, I, I would agree with you, Andy, that if anything, out of maybe the food that was offered, the, the almond milk or soy milk might be the thing that's the least, you know, the least new, I guess, for, for non-vegans to try. So I guess in that sense, I guess in that sense, it would probably be okay. I would still guess that there would be at least one person that would, you know, get up and go to the fridge to get the right, to get the, the dairy milk. I almost said regular milk to get the dairy milk. But I do agree with you, Andy, that it, it would be, you know, it could possibly be exposing people that have maybe never tried it before. So I don't know. I think there's pros and cons to it. I, I'm going to stick with what I said in the beginning though, that I think, Janet kind of planned this out all out very in a very smart fashion in, in terms of avoiding like avoiding possible confrontations like that. So I'm going to say that they did a good job with this. Uh, and, and again, it's it's like this is not something or I, I guess I don't know how frequently this happens. Maybe if it is something that's happening with frequency and coffee and these other hot drinks would be you know expected to be offered at some point maybe then yeah throw in the almond milk but if this is just happening you know every once in a while i don't i would i would guess people aren't going to be outraged that they don't have the hot drinks for just this one meeting that happens less frequently 
Yeah, I'll say the way Janet handled it is probably the way that I would handle it because I don't like confrontation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, but but I don't think that if if someone handled it the other way, the, the way that I had sort of suggested, I don't think anyone should feel bad or guilty if they do that and someone else makes their own choice to go out and and put the dairy milk in there. You know, like it, it sucks. You don't want to see it, but you can't control what other people do. And I'm not saying that from it. It's their personal choice way, but it's like you can only control so much. So I th- I think that what Janet did was good. It's providing you know food and and snacks that aren't that are vegan, and that's a good thing. I think that it it can just end right there. Yeah, and as will this question. The next question is coming to us from Instagram from Oh You Silly Duck, who asks. <laughs> I'm just starting to get more into the activism side of veganism, and I'd love to hear what you think about, quote, keyboard activism. I was wondering whether you think internet activism is effective, and if so, what kinds of things can we do to successfully spread the vegan message? Do you think we should target companies, share articles and videos, post delicious food pictures on Instagram, create YouTube accounts, argue and or discuss with trolls or uneducated carnists, or post about our experiences on social media? Which tactics do you use and which do you feel gives you the most bang for your buck? Are there any you would consider a waste of time or unhelpful to our cause? Do you think the future of vegan activism is through technology or do you think we should stick to traditional activism such as pamphleting and the cube of truth? As always, thank you for what you do. Thank you, silly duck. Yeah, that, oh, you silly duck. That This is a lot of questions, so let's let's try and work our way through it. Perhaps let's let's work our way backwards here because the question of do you think the future of te- uh, vegan activism is through technology or should we stick to traditional activism such as pamphlets in the Cube of Truth? I would say the Cube of Truth is uh, you know it's a thing where activists are are wearing masks. It's a project of Anonymous for the Voiceless, and they're all wearing these like just sort of plain white masks, and they're holding and they're standing in a square facing outward and they're holding video screens that play footage of animals in in the agricultural system it's you know horrible footage of course i think that that i would file that under activism made possible by technology i wouldn't consider that traditional activism necessarily maybe it's sort of a, a new a repackaging of a standard tactic which is showing people this footage but you know, the fact that you can go out on the street with an iPad and play someone a video and have your iPad working for several hours straight, that's definitely technology. So I think things like that, I I wouldn't put all of my uh, carrots in one basket. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I would ever sit and say technology is the way and, you know, leaflets are dead or talking to people is dead. You just have to do targeted ads on Facebook from now on or just you know, the, uh, the 3d virtual reality stuff, a variety of tactics I think are, are important. So I I would never say one thing is the way to go because one thing is never going to get every single person. One message is never going to get every single person. And maybe there's someone that'll watch a video on YouTube, but they're not going to read a leaflet that's handed out to them. But maybe there's someone that really likes to read and they don't spend much time on a computer. So you never know what's going to reach someone. As far as all of those other tactics, you know, we spend a lot of time on the show discussing whether we think various tactics are effective or not. And I think often we just sort of come down to like, yes, obviously we should always be open to the fact that we're doing something that's just not helping at all. We talk about that stuff all the time, but it's important to find something that you can do sustainably, repeatedly over a long period of time. 
I think is important and we need all kinds. So yes, of course we need people that post delicious food pictures on Instagram. We also need people sharing articles. Um, for me personally, you know, my sort of Facebook strategy is I just sit back and observe and listen most of the time. And then when I find an article that I think is really impactful, then I will post it. And like 80% of what I post is usually just ridiculous, silly stuff. And I don't even post that very often. Uh, usually it's sharing videos of Africa by Toto on uh, Paul's wall <laughs> or Slipknot memes. You know, so my, my strategy is, is don't flood people with information so they don't give a shit when you do. Make it so that you do it sparsely enough that when you do, people go, I should pay attention because he doesn't normally talk about this thing and now he's talking about it. As far as arguing with people online, I feel like that's an automatic lose every single time. Discussing with people online, possible, but I think nothing beats face-to-face -face interaction when you can sort of see people's intentions and feel their, their good nature and you're not prone to misinterpret things and you're not prone to argue and stomp off. I think that I would say that I, I get zero bang for my buck arguing with people online. Doesn't mean I don't do it from time to time. Sometimes <laughs> you just gotta, but... I think that that is one thing I think all of us could easily strike from our repertoire, and I don't think the animals would be any worse off for it. Paul, mm -hmm. I feel like I probably didn't even get to all the questions in that question, but uh, what are your thoughts on this? I agree with I agree with what you said. I, I would I would imagine going back to the first thing you responded to that the silly duck, w what they were calling traditional activism, they were talking about like activism that happens in real life versus activism that happens. On, oh, like over the internet or something like that? Uh, you're probably right, Paul. But, but like you said, I, I think that, you know, a diversity of tactics is necessary with the, the, with the, the caveat of I do think that we should constantly be assessing whether or not what we're doing is effective. And, and obviously there's not always, there's not always, you're not always collecting data that's going to tell you if this thing was effective, you can't necessarily measure whether or not you've planted this vegan seed into someone and they're going to they're going to become vegan a year from then. Like there's no way to necessarily measure that. But I do think that on a less uh, quantitative level, you can kind of reflect on what you're doing and think about like, OK, is this something that is benefiting that is beneficial to the movement? Is this something that is going to move people closer towards becoming vegan. And when you mentioned like the Facebook, Facebook arguments, I think it's, it's so easy to get wrapped up in, in something like that because this is something that we're so passionate about. It's something that we have very, very strong feelings about. So it's hard to not, you know, get wrapped up into, into arguing with someone over social media, but we did have a whole episode that where we talked about the backfire effect, which was episode 96, where, where we discussed how people just tend to have this natural reaction of, you know, if you if no matter how much evidence you provide against what they're saying, sometimes people will just dig their dig their heels in deeper. So you kind of have to be aware that that's a thing. And. I guess something that Andy maybe, I don't know, I feel like you touched upon this, but I do think that, and I believe Andy would agree with me, that there is, you know, there is the need for, or it is, internet activism is a super duper important and can be very, very effective. And 
I think that we see, you know, we, we see this in in blog posts, in in resources that people are posting around, in you know some great vegan podcasts that people make. And one thing that I know, I wanted to include this this time in this mailbag because I referenced it last mailbag and could not think of the name, and that's the simplehappykitchen.com. I referenced it last time. It's these, it's it's like vegan info like data points and statistics and just other uh, other information about veganism but it's presented in these like adorable little comics or drawings and and i think that that's something that's super duper effective and 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 it lets us present the information in a way that's not just like did you know that 35 percent of people that eat meat blah 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 it's like it's presented you know in in a cutesy way and it's going to attract people to look at it much more than just a boring old bar graph or, or a pie chart or something like that. So I do think that there's that there's the need for these sorts of things. I think that, like Andy said, there's the need for a, a great diversity of tactics. The end. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think uh, the only th- other little thing I want to add is that I think it's it's pretty ableist to say that the only type of activism is traditional quote traditional which i guess in this way we're defining as being like out in the public out in the street out doing a thing physically doing a thing not everyone's able to do that so i think it's important for us to sort of smash this idea that that there's you know that doing stuff online is not quote real activism smash it smash it all right moving right along we got an email from janessa b who asked I've been really focused on trying to follow a vegan lifestyle for the animals, the planet, and myself, and I keep getting stumped by meat eaters. A coworker of mine reminded me that just by supporting the growth of produce and grains and whatnot, I'm still killing animals due to the fact that farmers kill those who try to eat their crops, right? Makes sense. Then he tells me that even if they protected their crops in a harmless manner with high fences and whatever, the animals would go elsewhere, eventually starving to death if it were the case that all farmers followed the same path. So in conclusion to my question, what the fuck do I do? (laughs) What do I say? I don't know if there's any explanation for why being vegan is the way to go or why it makes sense. I'm getting so stumped and lost. Paul, we've covered i think at least twice the issue of animals being killed in say grain production by the Mm -hmm. threshers but this one i think is interesting to include because it sort of takes a different angle on that yeah so so what do you think about this idea of even if farmers were to because i think we always bring up yes grain production or animals killed in the production of food that's not you know that's technically vegan food normally like grain um, is is horrible, but it's it's insignificant compared to the animals that are killed for actual animal agriculture. And we're like, there's always ways that we could make it so that animals aren't harmed in the grain production. And that's if we had a vegan world, people would be working on getting that solution. But this is a statement that's saying, well, even if we had that solution, these animals would still starve and die. What do you think? I think that you know, there's like a. I've seen a lot of people wearing either vegan T-shirts or have like a sticker or seeing the post on Instagram. That's like vegan means I'm trying to suck less. I don't know if, if you know yeah, who you yeah, attribute yeah, yeah, that yeah. to. That's, uh, I'm pretty sure that's Food Fight Grocery is the originator of that. Okay, and and I think that applies to this situation because what I, I think what this this coworker is 
the, the the argument that they're trying to make, which is a common argument, is like saying, well, you know, being vegan isn't perfect, so you shouldn't do it at all. And they're right in their in their first in the first half of that. They're right that just because someone is vegan does not mean they are living a 100 percent cruelty free lifestyle. You know, it's like there are things that in the, the way that I, as a 27 year old at the time of this, uh, at the time when you hear this year old person living in the United States, the way that I live, the fact that I drive a car, it's like I am doing things that have detrimental effects on the environment and on animals and on people too. And I don't think that people should be shunned because they're trying to do something about it just because you can't necessarily tackle every single issue doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to tackle any of them and to to maybe talk specifically about what the coworker is saying like yes animals animals are going to be dying in the process of growing produce but like you mentioned Andy that pales in comparison to the number of animals that are raised and are being killed when people eat a non-vegan diet. So just by that nature alone, it's like, yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to harm this world. I'm trying to put as little harm in this world as I can. And also I think the, the argument that animals are going to starve if they don't have farms. I mean, animals did perfectly fine without humans for, you know, for 2000 years which is the 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 amount of time that the earth has been around <laughs> but animals did <laughs> animals did fine without without having humans to you know to feed them so i'm sure that animals are going to do fine i don't think that i would i would imagine most animals aren't living their lives purely based on you know getting food from farms and i do think however though that that thinking does reflect how many people specifically non-vegans feel that it's like animals are somehow indebted to us and that justifies us being able to use them it's like look how much we're helping these animals because we're giving them food to eat when they come on our farms which i just think that that's that's not true but it's this ideology that somehow they owe us because we're helping them and so therefore we can take from them whatever we want yeah nicely said paul yeah in a rare moment of paul saying something nice <laughs> you're always saying something nice paul eh. you're a nice guy you're a nice guy Thank you. yeah I, I mean i would i think that in all of this the the quick comeback is you know just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you should do nothing essentially and this this person is just deflecting like they're trying to make themselves not feel bad um you know when i when i encounter arguments like this i just say veganism is not you know or veganism acknowledges that it's impossible to eliminate your con contribution to cruelty and suffering 100%, but it's about doing the best we can to get that number as close to zero as possible. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of like the easy way to put it. Cause I think that a lot of people have this assumption uh, and whether this is portrayed by, you know, vegans that say veganism's cruelty free and all this, I'm sure that certainly adds to it, but there's this assumption that people think that vegans think that they are, 100% free of any and all wrongdoing ever. And that's just not the case. And I think it's important that as vegans, we make sure we give an accurate portrayal of what veganism is all about. 
Very nicely. Better put than I did, Andy. <laughs> I will say, I'll say this. I I appreciate doing this podcast because I think Andy is a lot better at putting words together in a way that is audibly pleasing to people than I am. Oh, so Paul, I'm you have such a that... great reading voice. <laughs> That's my redeeming factor is I can read. <laughs> oh, Paul, don't, don't be so hard on yourself. I love the way you talk. You have the best words. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of your reading voice. <clears throat> Our next email came in from Jessica F., who in, in the kind of intro of the email was talking about how as their feminism was evolving from listening to radical, mostly queer women of color, they have become increasingly uncomfortable with the primarily white animal rights organizations around them that have, for the most part, been unwilling to change or progress despite being called out on it. And then they continue. I know Andy has worked with the 10 Billion Lives Tour, but how about Paul? Are you involved with any activist organizations? Have either of you ever felt this way about any of the organizations that you have worked with too? And if so, what did you do about it? How did you ultimately come to decide that creating your podcast was your form of activism? And why did you choose that as your platform for educating and engaging others? As for me, how can I, or should I, distance myself from my activist community? Let go of the guilt and then work towards carving out a space to be an activist in my own way any insight or advice that you can give me would be very much appreciated Ooh, this is a good question paul and this definitely echoes back to uh, many many episodes we've had but i think especially the one that we were just talking about last week's episode and uh nicole from vegan warrior princesses attack brought up the the struggle between do we work especially for for like you and I, Paul, where we're, you know, cis white men who are like relatively privileged, do we stick around and work to hold our, our fellow cis white men accountable? Do we try and change things? Do we try and do the best that we can to make it better? Or do we just sort of leave and support the people that are sort of outside of the mainstream movement that are doing doing work or try and create something of our own? Uh, I don't I don't know if we ever really know exactly what to do there. I think for me, I always feel like my responsibility is to stick around and, and do the best I can to to hold uh, other people like myself accountable to those things. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you before we get to the other questions in this question? Like, what do you what are your feelings on that? Well, I feel like this is related to the Facebook argument where it's like, how long do you stick around to try and fix things before you have to just say like, this is not going to change. So I should just cut ties with this so that there, so that then, you know, the public sees like, okay, less fewer people are supporting this. I think it kind of, kind of relates to that. Would you agree? Yeah. 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 Again, it's, it's almost like how, how visibly, in opposition are you like if you decide to stick around because you think you're going to make things better are you actively and and sort of publicly visibly trying to make things better or are you just sort of there and your presence in the in this place and that could be whatever community it is is perceived as being accepting of it Uh, that's something Mm. that i struggle with for sure yeah and and i think you know this is obviously uh very a very confrontational thing to do which which not everyone is going to be comfortable or able to do but 
I feel like if if you are somehow involved with this group's and and this 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 emailer did mention about calling out calling out these organizations or that these organizations were called out, but I mean it might come down to you being like you like this needs to change and then you see how they respond to that and if they're if they don't they don't change it then you know you leave like that's i guess that's one one way to do it yeah it's tough um i i know that jessica sent us this email prior to hearing the episode that we just released um but but yeah, like I mentioned that I did used to work for a farm and, and that farm was a big subject of what we were talking about last week because they are the organizers of the conference that has had all these issues. And, you know, I was a very low level like tour worker. I wasn't involved in like the upper echelons of the movement. So I felt like my power was limited. But in retrospect, you know, I was like, damn, I, I probably could have like vocalized more. I don't know if it would have done anything, but just sort of at least adding to a chorus of people that were trying to change things is certainly something. I mean, you know, eventually I left for a number of reasons and I guess I feel like more comfortable with my position now that I, that I feel like I can vocally reach out, which I did do um, to the conference. I don't, when I get too into detail about that. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like because of the fact that I used to work for the people there and I know the people there, I now feel like it's part of my responsibility to reach out to them because of that. So I don't know. It's, it's a really tricky thing because like you said, Paul, not everyone is able or comfortable enough to do that. And it's like, yeah, maybe it is a job that you really need and you can't risk getting fired and you still acknowledge that you're doing a lot of good or some good while you're there. And that's better than doing no good. It's better than going and working at FedEx or something like that, where, where you're not going to be working on some animal issue or some issue that you really care about. So again, I, I just, I don't know. It's, it's really hard. I think that this, you know, this is what Jessica is, is wrestling with here. And I, I think personally, my advice is do go wherever you think that your, your abilities and skill set is going to be best used. And for some people that does mean leaving and aligning with other people that are outside of this particular movement. You know, the mainstream movement is very, you know, not radical in, in so many ways. And maybe you could find other people that, that do that. I don't think you should feel guilty about leaving a situation that's unhealthy for you. Yeah. I, I think because there is, there's so much gray area with this stuff and it's so situational. It's, it's hard to be like, you should do this or you, you should not do this. And also because of that, I think to the best extent possible, I would say, you know, don't feel don't feel guilty about this if if that's possible because like we are both saying not everyone depending on what your situation is not everyone is going to be able to make these certain moves yeah yeah definitely but but to to your question how can i or should i distance myself let go of the guilt you're i I, i don't know you or your situation but you shouldn't feel guilty about letting go i think it's important in life to know when to let go of things and i forget i forget what the name of the fallacy is but it's the one where like you've invested so much time in something and because of that despite the fact that it's failing you want to keep investing time so you feel like your time wasn't wasted but i think it's like a really valuable uh, ability for us to know when it's time to let go of something Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final part of this question, Paul. Uh, well, actually, there's another one that went un- unanswered. Uh, Paul, are you involved with any activist organizations? 
Not not particularly. Like I when Andy was still doing the Ten Billion Lives tour, he notified me when that was passing through Connecticut and I like helped out with that here and there. Like if I've been in a place where a friend of mine was doing leafleting, I would I would like help them out with that. I've done that here and there. I will say and and like I hope that Andy you don't think less of me for this, but I think that like that sort of activism where you do a lot of talking to strangers is just so far out of my comfort zone that I feel like I'm not very effective at that. I think that there are many, many people who do great with that kind of stuff. And I think there is also benefit in placing myself out of my comfort zone to help me grow as a person. But that kind of stuff has always been very anxiety inducing for me to have like possible confrontations with complete strangers like give me someone that i'm friends with i'll talk to them about this all day but with strangers it's just really not my uh it is not my forte i'm judging you so hard right now paul (laughs) oh (laughs) no i mean it's for anyone that like truly really knows me and knows how much of an introvert i am it's it's shocking the amount of things (laughs) that i do that put me in a situation that doesn't allow me to just be my little introvert in my little (laughs) crab shell not crab shell hermit shell (laughs) um yeah, it's amazing that there's so many things that I do that doesn't allow me to be in my little hermit shell. But I, I don't know. I guess I felt when I did that, I just felt so compelled that I wanted to be involved and and do something that it you know to push myself outside my comfort zone. But I feel that about the anxiety, Paul, because I got to a point when I started to really dread the start of the day while doing that. And I think there's probably a number of factors that contributed to that. But but it's not for everybody, and some people thrive on that, and some people don't. So, so there's no shade because I don't think anyone should, if you're like naturally inclined to want to talk to a lot of people, you should go talk to a lot of people. If you think the best thing you can do is sit behind a computer and do coding for like a a website, do that. Like there's no one thing to do. Yeah. I, I had a non-vegan, this is not related to veganism specifically, but I had a a part-time job recently that like you were saying, Andy, it's like the day or two before I would have to go to this job, I would just start having this like extreme dread. And I realized I was like, this is not, this is not healthy for me. I need to find something else to do. Uh, So I do not do that anymore. But yeah, I I don't think that there's, you should, anyone should feel guilty about, you know, coming to terms with like, I may want to do this, but this is not the thing that, that is going to be healthy for me. Yeah. And the final part of this question that was sandwiched in the middle of what we just talked about, how did you ultimately come to decide that creating your podcast was your form of activism? And why did you choose that as your platform for educating and engaging others? Have you ever thought about that, Paul? Well, I can tell you why we started the podcast, and that's because I found out that (laughs) creating a podcast is a thing that I could do, and that would be feasible (laughs) to do. And I said to myself, what would I want to have a podcast about? And because veganism is a very important part of my identity, I said, I should do one about veganism. And I thought to myself, well, who is, (laughs) who is the person that knows the most about veganism and is the best and the best person in the world in general to do, to host this with. And I said, and then when they couldn't do it, you asked me. (laughs) (laughs) 
so that's how that's how I kind of decided to to start it was just kind of that I found out that it was a thing that would be possible to do. And, you know, if you've listened to the very early episodes, it starts off it starts off a little rocky, as most things do. But we've kind of gotten into our groove. But I think in general, you know, you just you, you can find the thing that works for you that doesn't induce dread into you. And th- that is going to somehow benefit the vegan movement or animals in general. And, you know, you just you need to find what that thing is and maybe you try a few different things maybe you start a blog maybe you make you know uh cross-stitch animal messages and sell them on etsy like i don't know what your thing is but just find your thing and roll with it yeah i feel like when paul asked me to do the podcast i don't know if either of us were thinking like this is activism that we're doing right now i think it was just for me it was like this will be a fun thing to do maybe we'll connect with a few people it wasn't I, I don't think it was some big strategic this is how we're going to help animals it just felt like we had stuff we wanted to talk about and viewpoints within veganism that we weren't seeing represented on you know too many podcasts and just like all right let's just do it ourselves and it'll be a cool way to to spend time together and look at us now making that sweet, sweet podcast money. Mm, the whole <laughs> I, I wanted to say zero dollars, but it's negative that from all the equipment <laughs> that we've had to buy, yeah. especially me over and over again, because I keep mm-hmm. breaking things and <laughs> buying merch to give away to people. So <laughs> thanks, Andy. We're in the negative. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just find your find your thing. Try different things. Yeah, I mean, I love podcasting for anyone out. I feel like maybe we could do like a mini episode on like how to do a podcast or something at some point. But it's it's something that's like generally kind of a low barrier to entry. Like you don't need a Mm -hmm. ton of money to even the decent equipment isn't that expensive, but you can record it on your iPhone if you need. Um, Or I mean, I know an iPhone's not cheap, but it's a thing that a lot of people just happen to have or a smartphone. So um, if you feel inclined to do it, you should just do it. I agree. Okay, we uh, got a couple left here. So the next question's coming to us from Instagram from Is Your Love Big Enough? Who asked, maybe you covered this, but how do you deal with relatives who truly believe ethical dairy farms are a thing, as in they give milk to the baby cows before milking the excess for human consumption? It's a good question. I feel like it's a pretty simple one in that we just need to go back to the fact that veganism is about animal use, not necessarily abuse. And that is that milk is food intended for a baby cow. And so whenever we take it, it's an unethical act because it's not something that they can consent for us to take. Boom. That's it. That's it. <laughs> All right. I don't think I, I don't think I can add anything to that. Okay. So we got another question on Instagram from Ashrat90. Do you think the founder of veganism, who I believe is Donald Watson, would be happy with the progression of veganism as a social movement or be disappointed by how current veganism is represented, including its current messages, prominent influencers, and how we promote the vegan movement? So before I turn this over to you, Paul, mm-hmm. I want to say the the question about who i believe is donald watson so the vegan society was founded in 1944 credited to donald watson and sometimes elsie shrigley as well but even on their own website they admit that veganism has been around for much longer than that they're just sort of credited with with coining the term for it specifically donald watson always is but i found something that said actually his wife dorothy is the one who came up with it 
Um, anyway, so with that little caveat out of the way, since Donald Watson is by many considered to be this very you know, large and important figure to veganism, uh, how do you think uh, Donald Watson would feel? Um, I have no idea how Donald Watson would feel. <laughs> I, it, like, I, I, I feel like, and I know that I'm not really going to answer the question here, which is what I'm known to do, but I feel like many people get hung up, not and especially not with veganism, but with other current political issues. A lot of people get hung up about like, what would this person be thinking about this? What would this person from 300 years ago think about this situation? And even though Donald Watson is much more, you know, recent than the founding fathers of the United States, I still think it's like, I don't know if I don't know if it really matters what what Donald Watson would think because I don't really know too much about him. I don't know maybe what his current views were about non-vegan issues and if if I would agree with those given the time period that he was alive, I worry that I would have some uh, disagreements with how he views certain things, but I'm making assumptions, maybe that I shouldn't. But yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I know that this this isn't what the, the question asker was implying necessarily, but I think that we we should let go of we can we can acknowledge people that did things, but we can we can let go about some people and what they think in in terms of how that would influence what we think. Am I making any sense, Andy? You are. You are. I I know I understand that this email is just sort of or this comment is a just sort of a fun thought experiment more so than hopefully than something that would like really play into how we proceed with our future activism, I guess. It's just like a oh, what do you think about this? But but my response is definitely it's a respectful who gives a shit. Like <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like we yeah, we don't need to be hung up on these things. That's why I don't even really want to speculate about it because I feel like it's it's totally inconsequential to the the current state of animal rights. Yeah. And and in turn like this is the first time I've heard it it re- related to veganism, but I feel like it, it like a lot of people use this that same idea about like this is what these people wanted and this is what they intended for to back some pretty terrible stuff in other other political realms so um sorry ashrat 90 for stomping all over your question (laughs) (laughs) We, we totally didn't mean that as an attack on on you so i hope that that you didn't you didn't take it that way yes indeed so the next email is coming from Elizabeth H who emailed in, who actually emailed in an article from NPR. The article is titled the USDA rolled back protections for small farmers. Now the farmers are suing. And in the email, Elizabeth referenced the article, but basically I feel like the article can be summed up with this one quote from the article that says at issue is the Trump administration's withdrawal of two Obama era rules designed to protect small farmers who say they are being exploited by the meatpacking companies they supply. So that's like the gist of what's going on. And now let me read a little bit from Elizabeth's email while reading it. I not only felt sorry for the animals being farmed, but I also felt sorry for the people involved in this whole ordeal. 
Obviously, we vegans would rather not have animal farmers and ranchers to begin with, but I think this just goes to show how bad the meat industry really is even for people, especially when left unchecked. And letting conglomerate corporations run around unchecked seems to be this president's mission while in office, but I digress. This particular quote stuck out to me. This is a quote from the article. Another rule the USDA withdrew would have helped define which actions are considered unfair, discriminatory, or deceptive. Left intact was a third rule clarifying the rules of governing the, quote, tournament system of poultry producing, which pits producers against each other in a contest of who can produce the biggest chickens with the least amount of feed. And then Elizabeth goes on. The meat industry pits farmers against each other at animals' expense? It can't be. Seems to me that having more vegans, while detrimental to animal farmers and ranchers in the interim, would actually be beneficial in the long run for their financial and probably physical well-being. Perhaps they'd be forced to convert to plant agriculture to meet the market's demand. Maybe that's a good thing. I'm also not going to pretend this probably doesn't happen in plant agriculture, too, because basically any faceless conglomerate corporation typically won't give a hoot about the people they walk on. Think of how they treat coffee and chocolate farmers in other countries. But considering the circumstances, I get the impression that the meat industry is far worse and could do more damage to a person. I could be wrong. Thoughts? Thoughts, Andy? Thoughts? God, I have no thoughts. My head is totally empty. (laughs) I think can can I can I take a stab at this? Sure. I think this this is I think related to, you know, somewhat related to what we talked about in like the second or third episode, which was, you know, we can care about we can care about more than one issue at once. We can care about human issues and animal issues. Now where this gets trickier is like we're not necessarily talking about the rights of the workers working on plant agriculture. Now it's the rights of the workers working on uh, animal agriculture, which I think is something that, that these people that are doing this still deserve. They deserve to be treated fairly despite me disagreeing with it. I think that we can still, you know, we can still want them to, uh, not financially suffer and and as a non-expert in this field i don't necessarily know what the alternative is i don't know if i know we've talked about this before about like could all the farmers just switch from animal agriculture to plant agriculture i think there was an episode where we talked about that a few articles related to that in the uk that some some that were skeptical about that but i don't know I don't know, Andy. I guess I don't have as many concrete thoughts as I thought I did. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think I, my thoughts are pretty much in line with yours, there, Paul. Um, it, it reminds me of this similar email that we also got from Hannah P, which uh, e- who emailed in after our most recent episode where we were talking about the dairy industry and Feb- February dairy. I think was must have been the one. I don't know. We've been talking about dairy's inevitable downfall for a while now. And it won't stop because I know we got a news item to talk about next episode regarding the dairy industry. But Hannah wrote in, I'm just going to pull one line from the uh, from the email, but it said, I think it's a bit unfair to discuss this issue without mentioning farmers at all. Even though I don't agree with dairy production practically, I certainly feel for small dairy producers who are really struggling. And yeah, I don't think the last time we talked about dairy, we particularly talked about the farmers 
perhaps not even at all. I know we've definitely talked about it a bunch that we feel that it's not productive to gleefully be happy about, you know, these the farmers dairy or whatever losing jobs and livelihoods and hardship for their family. Like we don't revel in that, but I think it's also sort of the inevitable growing pains of people waking up to animal liberation. And, and so, yeah, like you were saying to answer your, the last question you're answering, Paul, like we can care about both things. Like I can care about the animals that are being slaughtered, but also be appalled at the horrible conditions that slaughterhouse workers have to work in. So I don't know. I don't know if we're obligated to to mention the farmers literally every time we bring up, you know, issues of animal agriculture or the sales of meat going down or milk going down or whatever it might be. But it is a good point, you know, to to remind people of that every now and then. I think if it's a story that's particularly focusing on the farmers, it's maybe more responsibility to do so. But I, I feel like, you know, we, we talk about that fairly often. I understand some people don't listen to every episode or just joining us now. So, yeah, on the record, we don't think it's great for, for all that horrible stuff to happen to farmers as well. And I think this is also related to the episode where we were talking about this actually might be the same episode, but that I referenced before. But we were talking about how oh, God, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was about how like new new industries are constantly being created i think there was the statistic in one of the articles you read that was like 20 or 30 percent of children that are in school right now will be employed in jobs that don't currently exist it's like everything is it's it's all constantly evolving and it, it this particular article went back through like some it gave historical examples of times when people have been like oh no this change is going to ruin this this industry and everyone's going to be out of their jobs and it's like yes because of some progress because of in in this case they were probably talking about you know the the introduction of machines to take over some tasks for people as rudimentary as the machines might have been a couple hundred years ago people were concerned about you know losing their jobs and yes those people People did lose their jobs to machines, but in the process of creating these machines, more jobs were created. So while, like Andy said, I don't revel in the fact of being like, yes, I want you out of your job. I don't, I don't want people to not have jobs. I don't think that that should be the reason that progress in general, not just talking about veganism, but that progress, progress should not be halted because of that fact because humans we we will adapt to whatever changes happen that's how it's always been and as the inevitable machine machine takeover that's how it probably will be yeah <laughs> i'll hail the machine <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember what episode that was andy why paul i think that might be episode 102 what will happen to non-vegan jobs yeah so if you so fancy you can go over to the bearded vegans website thebeardedvegans.com or the commentist.com slash bearded dash vegans <laughs> and in the show notes you can check out some of those articles that we were referencing all right we just got two questions left uh both come from instagram and i think that they are kind of related so it'll be a nice way to cap off this episode this one is coming to us from Biscuits Are Better on Instagram, and they say, My question is, how do you get through the disturbing, grotesque depression of seeing all of the terrible graphic posts on social media and petitions sent to your email? 
I have to stay away from social media a few days a week, which I should anyway, because I just get sick from what goes on in the world. It gets overwhelming, and I know vegan isn't enough for my conscience, but how do you guys stay positive after seeing all the carnage? I think I had mentioned this back when we watched maybe Peaceable Kingdom, maybe Bold Native. It was one of the recent movie reviews that we did, but I had mentioned how it 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 took me by surprise when this graphic imagery came up in the movie, which, like, you know, it's not uh, uncommon to see graphic image in a vegan and an ethical vegan movie, but it surprised me because without realizing it, I just had not seen a lot of graphic footage in a long time. And, and it's something that I avoid seeing. I don't follow because I know there are many Instagram accounts, a plethora of Instagram accounts that really, you know, every single day they're making a post of some very graphic image and you know, I, I don't need to see that, so I'm not going to follow that account. I, I know sometimes people will make the argument like, oh, we need to we need to bear witness to this to this violence. We need to be watching this because that's what the animals are going through. I don't necessarily think that I don't necessarily agree with that. And I don't necessarily think that that's productive or has any sort of constructive element behind it i guess so i tend to try to avoid these things i avoid them by not following for instance on social media accounts that will post these sorts of things i am on email lists but i don't think i'm on any that would send these sorts of images just in their regular emails like maybe if i clicked through some of their stuff i would but yeah, if if you're overwhelmed by this, then it is definitely within your right to unfollow some of these accounts that are posting these things for your own mental health. Yeah, I see better <laughs> biscuits are better sort of version of what being online is like, and it runs so counter to what my version of being online is like. And I know, you know, I feel like I've mentioned this before in terms of Facebook etiquette, but sometimes you get a friend request from someone and you go look at their page and it's just post after post after post of all this horrible animal cruelty. And maybe I'll accept their request, but just not like unfollow them. And so I know that 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 version of Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram exists, but it's one that's just so outside of my realm. And I, I make sure to curate the people that I follow that aren't you know that aren't just friends who I'm following for information the ones that don't typically post a lot of stuff like that I don't think we have any obligation to bear witness to those things repeatedly I think it's traumatic for a lot of us and I think that ultimately the effect is usually more sort of paralyzing than it is motivating and so so like you were saying Paul like yeah unfollow those accounts I don't think that we need to see them I feel like there's this sort of attitude that we sort of have to engage in this self-flagellation uh, and like bear witness and punish ourselves for being a part of this horrible world and being a part of humanity and being complicit in their suffering prior to be vegan or that we're not doing enough and we have to make ourselves feel horrible about that and I just I don't think that that's productive or necessary for most of us so I think you're within your right to, and I think it's good for you from what you're sending to us. I think it'd be really good for you to stop following a lot of those accounts. You can still get a lot of great information about um, the actions that you can take for, for animals from other sources. 
Very nice. All right. And on that note, it's our second to last question, Paul. All right. The second to last question comes from Meow24 on Instagram. Do you think vegan organizations who post on social media have a moral obligation to put content warnings on videos or graphic images they post? Sometimes I don't even click links to videos because I'm scared I'll be unexpectedly exposed to graphic images. I am already vegan and I gain nothing from seeing suffering, especially without my consent. I bring this up because a few times plant-based news would post a link that I thought was going to be a speech or interview and it ended up having some really graphic images flash in unexpectedly. Ever since then, I stopped clicking any animal rights organization's videos. I feel like not posting content warnings is inappropriate particularly when I would assume the majority of the people who interact with their posts are probably already vegan. What say you, Andy? Yeah, that's a good point, because this almost makes me think about our recent discussion about whether or not restaurants should, vegan restaurants should ban fur. And to me, the, the core of the question is, what is the purpose of the vegan restaurant? Is it a safe place for vegans or is it an outreach center for non vegans? And I I think that these big organizations, they need obviously a lot of numbers to be boosted by the vegans, but like ultimately why are they there other than to help make new vegans? So on some level, and I I know we've had many discussions about whether or not we need to use graphic imagery or not, but I think a lot of people view it as like essential to opening people's eyes to the horrifying reality of animal agriculture. And if they put these graphic warnings on there, does that mean that a lot of people, less people will watch them? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I would just not follow organizations that are always posting those things unless, you know, unless that's one that you feel like really needs your support. But you know, the big ones, I don't think they really need your, your follows and your likes on there. Um, But I don't know if they're, they're obligated to put the content warning. I feel like, it's good practice to put the content warning out of respect for the vegan followers. I don't know. What do you think, Paul? I agree that I don't believe they have a, like a moral obligation to do it, but I think it's just a decent thing to do. And for that reason, I would say, Hey, you know, it probably doesn't take too much time. Just slap, slap something on there, slap something at the, at the beginning of the video. And you know, if, if a non-vegan is looking at this i would imagine that if they're going to watch it all the way through then that content warning would not deter them from that like i think one if they knew what they were getting themselves into by clicking on this link they're going to watch it because they already know what it's going to be about and two if if the content warning would make them not watch the video then in those first few seconds of watching the video they would probably click away from it anyways so i don't think that there's really any significantly detrimental reason to not have one and so for that reason i i think put one on there yeah i think that's good reasoning paul thank you well i think with that said i think we've reached the end of the mailbag we have so sad so so sad yeah again i feel like we say this every single time we love hearing from everyone we love uh, the questions the concerns 
Uh, we love hearing when people tell us that we're wrong so we can sort of expand our views and our opinions on things. And we also, of course, love hearing the support from everyone. It it means a lot. Definitely makes doing the podcast um, worth it. And I know we say this a lot, but we do read every single email that people send in. And uh, we have not gotten back to everyone yet, but we are trying to. And sorry if if we have never gotten back to you, but I, I do promise that we do read every single email that comes in. Yes. We take them all to heart. If, if you want to send us an email, that email once again is the bearded vegans at gmail.com. And that's the best way to reach us. That makes sure that we'll see it. And even if we sort of read it and, and don't get to respond immediately, that it'll, it'll still be there. It's not going to disappear like a DM or a Facebook comment or message or anything. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. hit us up. We love it. And don't forget, yes. go leave those iTunes reviews if you want to be entered for uh, next Mailbags contest, which will be just 10 short episodes from now. Win a free button and sticker. 10 short episodes away. <laughs> It's like two and a half months. So, Andy, what do you got coming up? This weekend, back in action, baby. I'll be at the PHX Vegan Food Fest in Phoenix, Arizona. That's February 24th. Uh, March 24th, I'm not going to be there, but I have a friend that's going to be running uh, a compassion company table at the Des Moines Vegan Fest, which is, I believe, their first one. So that's really exciting to see Iowa repping. Uh, March 25th, I will be at the Vegan Street Fair in Los Angeles, California. So excited for that. I uh, cannot wait. And then March 31st, I'm going to be at the Andy Veg Fest in Indianapolis, <laughs> Indiana. <laughs> Uh, I got a lot more events. I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, five, five events in April, uh, May, June, all the way through October, all over the country, all the the United States right now. So if you want uh, the links to any of those events that I just mentioned, or you want to see what the future schedule is, head over to CompassionCo.com and check them out. Come say hi. Come by the table. I'll be at the Compassion Company table. Say, what's up, Beardo? I'll give you a button or a sticker. Yeah. So, Paul. Yes, Andy. There's there's one final letter in this mailbag. Mm-hmm. Um, Seems like we always miss one. I know it's weird, but let me uh, open it. Mm. Sounds great. Okay. Uh, oh, this is interesting. It says, "I hear the drums echoing tonight." But she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation. She's coming in, 1230 flight. The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me toward salvation. It goes on, it goes on. It says, I stopped an old man along the way, hoping to find some long forgotten words or ancient melodies. He turned to me as if to say the following seven words. (laughs) We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off.
went in that beautiful mouth of yours? One sec. Uh, I've never heard of that before. What does it taste like? He doesn't have his earbuds in. <laughs> All right. Next question coming in via email from Janet L. Is that an I or an L? I. All right. Next email coming in from Janet I, who is emailing in from Scotland. 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 <laughs> the land of Scott. <laughs> That's where my dad lives. Um. <laughs> okay. You can just keep recording. Just going to keep on recording, uh, have a conversation with myself while Paul is gone. Since he told me to just keep on recording. <laughs> oh, Andy. Oh, wait. No, I asked that. I think it's because you just asked the Hannah P one. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> it's anarchy. No one's listening now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 